You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. I want to tell you a story this morning. Now, this is a story that um, a lot of people know, especially people in churches, but I don't think they entirely understand it, even those people who call the story their own, okay? It's a story uh, that started a long time ago, and how long is a matter of debate. That doesn't concern me so much. But it's a story about how the world began, how it ends, and everything that's really profoundly important in between. But there's a problem with wanting to tell the story. A huge part of my life, and for many of you, is involved in this story and telling the story. But when I re- meet somebody for the first time and I want to engage them on issues like this, I, I run into a problem. Uh, for example, I was sitting on an airplane, which I fly quite a bit, uh, next to a, an attorney, and he asked me, as we d- you do, as, you know, what do you do for a living, etc. cetera. And, um, and now I'm at a crossroads because I want to tell him that I'm a, a public speaker and a writer and a radio talk show host, and I know that what he will ask me then is, well, what is it that you talk about? So I try to glamorize it as much as possible to get the response back from him. And, and this is where I run into a difficulty, because I want to tell him that I talk about uh, religious issues, especially Christianity, um, but I don't want him to think about religious issues, in other words, an important definition into this discussion of, of Christianity and religion that most people have in our culture, okay? Most people think of religion as kind of a spiritual hobby horse, a spiritual fantasy project. As, uh, as, as Karl Marx put it, religion is the opiate of the people. It's what people l- lean on or grab on to, to make them feel better. And so different people have different things in the religious category that gives them this feeling. It's a different strokes for different folks, so to speak. But that's not my view. That wasn't the view of Jesus of Nazareth. That is not the view of classical Christianity. And so in my conversation, I don't want to stumble and, in a sense, allow the person I'm talking to to begin to understand whatever I have to say about Christ and Christianity in that way. Oh, that's good for you. Oh, good. I'm glad you found something as if this was like, a, like tennis or fishing or bridge or some kind of hobby that brought me satisfaction as opposed to something that was absolutely vital. And so my comments in those circumstances are going to be guided by a very particular way of characterizing Christianity, which is a way that I think a lot of Christians have not understood. And if we're not clear about something very, very foundational, then we are going to become a victim of that confusion as we communicate with other people and maybe even a victim ourselves in the way we understand it. And by the way, there is a surge in Christianity that is going leftward, so to speak, in their theology. And they are victimized by this problem. So this is what I want to say. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. I don't want you to answer it. I want you to think about it, though, as if you did have to answer it. And here's the question. What is Christianity? What is Christianity? If somebody were to ask you that question, how would you immediately respond? Now, you might say, well, Christianity is a religion, and that, that's true as far as it goes. You might say that it's a way of living your life that's full and satisfying. Got that. You might say it's not really a religion, but a relationship with God or with Jesus. And I understand what you're talking about. And all of those things are accurate as far as they go, but they don't go far enough. Because it's too easy to take all of those things and subjectivize them into my spiritual fantasy. No, I think the correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. It's an account or a, uh, a characterization of how the world really is. It's a view of the structure of the world, if you will. 
It's a view of the way things are out there, not in here. It's a picture of reality. It's a, it's a view of the world. It's a worldview. It's another way of putting it. And this is a picture that's made up of pieces. And uh, the pieces have to fit together in a very particular way. So think of a, think of a puzzle. So you had a puzzle, you got a big picture, and the picture's made up a bunch of pieces, okay? And if you want to get the puzzle right, you have to have all the right pieces, right? And uh, you can't have pieces missing, or you can't have pieces from other puzzles mixed in. This is going to be confusing, okay? Um, in order to be able to get that big picture. But I want to tell you the way the puzzle for most Christians of the picture of reality looks for them. This is how it looks. It's a pile of pieces. Now, I know there's a bunch of that here that are really annoyed by just dropping these on the stage. <laughs> you want to come up here and pick them up, don't you, Mom? Yeah, okay. Well, you, after I'm done, all right, both of you can do now look, at they may have a lot of the right places. There's Jesus, and there's Moses, and there's the new covenant, and there's the resurrection, and there's the old covenant, and Abraham, and they're all doing their thing because we know these particulars, and we got heaven, and maybe we got hell. A lot of people are abandoning that too, but that's all part of the pieces. But how does it all fit together? You see, they've never put it together in a whole account in order to understand the big picture. Now, if you want to work a puzzle, if you're a puzzle worker, you know there's a cheat to help you out, right? And uh, it's something we can do here, though, and that is you look at the cover and you get a guide to how the puzzle goes together. So that's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to look at the big picture of Christianity, the Christian worldview, the story of reality, so that you never get lost in the pieces again. Now this, I chronicle at length in this book by the same title, A Story of Reality. The subtitle is How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. But let me just give you kind of the overview of it, so to speak. So far I've been talking about a worldview like a picture, in this case a picture of reality. But a worldview is also like a story, and I think this is a good way to understand it and characterize it uh, to our culture nowadays. And the Christian story is like many other great stories. I mean, it, has, um, it deals with the great issues that all people struggle with. It deals with the great questions that everyone asks. In our case, it's a story about peace that's shattered by rebellion. It's a story about love. It's a story about betrayal. It's a story about conflict and self-sacrifice and ultimately about redemption. Now, when you think about stories, if it's a good story, uh, there's four parts. A story has a beginning, and the beginning is meant to, to introduce not only the main characters, but also the kind of setting that you find yourself in, okay? So if you open to the first couple lines of a story and you read in a whole, in the ground, there lived a hobbit. <laughs> well, you know you're not in Kansas anymore, right? So the introduction kind of lays the foundation, okay? Uh, but then after the introduction, you learn the main players, something goes wrong. There's conflict. That's the second thing. And actually, in any good story, most of the story deals with the conflict and how the conflict gets resolved. And then towards the end of the story, everything comes together in a conflict resolution. Writers call it a denouement. All the pieces get tied off together, and then you kind of have an ending. They lived happily ever after kind of thing. So you have those four parts to a good story, a restoration at the final end. Now, I mentioned the Christian story starts a long time ago, and that doesn't really concern us. What does concern us is that this particular story does not start with the words, once upon a time. And the reason it doesn't is because this story is not meant to be understood as a fairy tale or a myth. It is meant to be understood to describe what went on in the past that leads to our issues in the beginning, in the, in the, in the present, and in the future. Okay, it's a true story, okay? And 
when I say true, I, I, don't, I don't mean true for me. I mean true in its ordinary sense. My daughter, I have two daughters, one's uh, 16 and one's 13. I know what you're thinking when you... He's got a 13-year-old? He's an old guy. How did that happen? I can't remember. But you can pray for me. Twice. I got two of them, okay? But when my eldest was about five years old, she started reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and she asked me, Papa, does that story about uh, uh, Lucy and Peter and Edmund and Susan and the lion, is that a true story? I said, no, honey, that's not a true story. Some stories are true, and some stories are fiction. That's a fiction story. But I was careful to let her know that the other story that we are teaching her, the story of reality, is not like Narnia. It is a true story. The things in the story really exist. And the events actually took place, and the things they predict will happen in the future. It's history, not fiction. And this is the kind of point that I, I wanted to make to the stockbroker or somebody else. I'm not telling my story. I'm telling the story of the world. Now, it's certainly possible, for the sake of discussion here, that I could be mistaken about what the true story is. Okay, and that's where apologetics come in. We give our reasons why we think it's so. All right, but I want people at least not to mistake the kind of story I'm telling. I am not telling my story. I am not offering my truth. I'm not talking about what I conjured up in my head because I like it or it makes me feel good. To be honest, lots of times I do not like Christianity. Lots of times Christianity does not make me feel good. And if you've been around for a while and your pastor, if he's honest with you, will tell you that's the case. Following Christ in this world is hard, okay? If you want to choose something you like, find something else, but it won't be the truth. I care about the truth and living the truth. And so this is the kind of story that I'm talking about, an accurate story. And by the way, making sense of this story will help you make sense of the two biggest challenges that you're going to encounter with outsiders regarding Christianity. And if you're a tire kicker here today, it's probably something that's on your mind. And the first thing is the problem of evil. How, if there is a good God who is all-powerful, how could there be so many things that are wrong in the world? Now, by the way, just notice what that affirms. It affirms something that everybody knows no matter where they lived or when they lived. It affirms that something's wrong with the world. Everybody knows that something's wrong with the world, okay? And they, if they were perceptive, they would realize that the something that's wrong with the world is something that's wrong with us, and not just the other guy or gal, but something that's wrong with each and every one of us. But there's a problem, and so we look, well, if God's really good and he's powerful, why doesn't he deal with that? So that's a problem. And if you don't understand the story properly, you're not going to understand how that all works out. Okay? The second thing you're not going to understand, and by the way, you're going to find out when you get this, understand the story, is that the problem of evil is not the problem for Christianity that Christians or others think it is. I'll explain that shortly. But the second thing you're not going to be able to deal with is why Jesus is the only solution. I mean, to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, which, by the way, is what he said. I didn't make that up. You didn't make that up. Jesus said that, and so did every single person he personally trained to follow after him said the same thing. Okay? This is wildly politically incorrect in today's culture, right? Obviously. <clears throat> but he said it for a reason. And that is that singular problems, problem of evil, often have singular solutions. Singular problems have singular solutions. And when you understand the story, these two problems will fall into place for you. So let me give you the backbone of the Christian story, the true story of reality. I don't, I'm, I'm going to give you the storyline. I'm going to do it in five words. Okay, this is the historical timeline. It also tells the most important things that happened in the order that they took place. So here's the backbone, here's the outline. God, 
Write this down. God. Second, Jesus. I'm sorry. Man. God, man. Man comes after God. Jesus comes next. God, man. Jesus. Cross. Resurrection. And here I'm referring to the final resurrection at the end of the age, okay? God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. That's the outline of the story. It tells the most important things that happened in the order that they took place. The story starts with God. He's the most important character. Then he creates the second most important, human beings, okay? But human beings got themselves in a heap of trouble, didn't they? And so God initiates a rescue plan. And in this story, it's unique because in this story, man does not rescue himself. He cannot do that. God has to rescue him. And he rescues him by becoming a man in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus does something very unique that culminates on a cross that determines what happens to everybody in the final resurrection to reward or judgment. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. No. When I was teaching this in my own church, my youngest daughter was like four years old, and she was sitting right there uh, awake, um, at least for the first five minutes. And she told me, Papa, I don't want to hear you preach because you're boring. <laughs> she said, I feel sorry for you because every time you preach, you have to listen to yourself. But anyway, as I'm, uh, I'm going through the five points, there she is in the chair going through the five points herself because she knows those five points. And if she could get it, I bet you could get it. So don't look at your notes right now. I just want you to walk with those five points with me. Let's see if you got it. All right? All together. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. Pastor, take a bow. Very nice. Right. Those are the main points of the story. That's the big picture, okay? So I want to tell you the story of the time we have left. I want to give you the big picture of Christianity. I want to tell you the story of reality. Every story has a beginning. Here's the way our story starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in that one line, there's a whole lot of important stuff for understanding how the story works. First, the story starts with God. Why? Because the story is about God. It is not about us. Let me say that again. The story is about God. It is not about us. Now, if you don't get that straight, you are going to be a miserable Christian. My mom used to say when I was a kid, Gregory. That's what moms use the full name, you know, when they're going to give you this. The world does not revolve. See, your mom said it too. <laughs> and uh, they were right. And you're going to say the same thing to your own kids. That's biblical. The world does not revolve around us. It revolves around God and His purposes. And not being disrespectful here, but this puts a, another saying in Christianity, kind of turns it around a little bit. It's not really about God's wonderful plan for your life. It is about your life for God's wonderful plan. You are expendable for the sake of the cross. Paul said so in Philippians chapter, what, 2 or so. If I am being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice for your faith, Paul says, I rejoice. If I'm going to be killed on your behalf, I'm here. He says in, later in chapter 3, let other people's interests be more important than your own because it's not about you. It's about God and his purposes, okay? So God is the main character, okay? What else do we learn from that passage? We also learn that everything belongs to God why? Because he made it. You make it, it's yours. Now, there's a lot of 
mentality nowadays that it's my body, I can do whatever I want. And this, by the way, has morphed way beyond the abortion issue 25 or 30 years ago. That was a popular. It's into everything now. It's my body, I can declare everything that I want to be true about myself, even if it doesn't match my body. All right, and you can think of all kinds of cultural issues that are manifest in this situation. But look at if God, if this is God's world, then it's not your body in the way you think it is. It's God's. He's the landlord. We may be the tenant, to use an illustration from C.S. Lewis, but he's the one in charge. And this is another point of confusion. This is God's world. Okay, here's a, there's also a, a theme to this story, and it's right there in the first sentence. And a lot of people wonder, what's the main theme of the Bible? And they talk about love, for example. Love doesn't show up until the book of Deuteronomy, actually. There's something else in the first line that gives us a clue to, to the essential nature of the story. Because in the first line, you have a king, right? God, who creates a domain. Let's call it a dom. A king creates a dom. And so you have a what? A kingdom that the king rules over. And this shouldn't be surprising then that when guy, later on in the story, a guy named John comes pronouncing the kingdom of God and he introduces Jesus of Nazareth. He talks about the kingdom of God and he trains a bunch of other disciples who talk about the kingdom of God because what they're talking about is God's appropriate rulership over everything that's his, which is everything. And our appropriate role underneath this rulership. Now, this is the most radical claim of the story nowadays because nowadays everything is about expressive individualism. I'm in charge of everything and whatever I think is reality, and I get it the way I want it, and if I don't get it the way I want it, then you're bad for not letting me have it. That is sweeping the nation, all of Western culture. It's overwhelming. If you're older, you just see the fringes. Those who are younger, they are seeing it firsthand, and they are being punished for not going along with it. Okay, this is huge. This is a direct conflict point with an essential part of the story. Who's in charge? The potter or the clay? That's the question. And our culture says the clay is in charge. That's what our culture is saying over and over and over. I'm spending more time than usual on this particular point because it's so central to what's happening in the moment. This story says the clay isn't in charge. The clay is clay. It is the potter who is in charge. It's his world. This is my father's world. Right? The song goes. Story doesn't start with man. The story is not about us. Everything belongs to God because he made everything. Story has a theme, the kingdom of God. I want you to notice one other thing, that in this story, reality consists of two different things. You've got physical stuff, and you also have non-physical stuff. You have material stuff, and you have immaterial stuff. You have material things like birds and babies and asteroids and atoms, all of that's real, but also you have immaterial things like spirits and souls and minds and miracles. All are equally at home in this story. It's the kind of world we live in. Now, the reason you know, I want to emphasize that is there is a competing story, a couple of them, but one of the big competing stories is that matter is all that exists, okay? It's just stuff. That story starts in the beginning, the particles, or as one famous person put it, the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. No God, no souls, no heaven or hell. No miracles, no morality of any deep sense, just morality for me. Just molecules in motion. Most people call it materialism. It's the point of view that atheists and secularists and humanists and communists hold. Everything is here, nothing out there. That's it. That's a competing view. It's nothing like our story, obviously. It's a competing story of reality. But let me tell you the reason, one of the most profound reasons that I 
uh, I cannot take that story seriously. It isn't because I'm already a Christian, so I'm going to believe this, so I'm not going to believe that. I'm standing out of my Christianity right now trying to make sense of my world, trying to find the best explanation for the way things are. Remember I mentioned a few moments ago that one thing that everybody knows about the world, doesn't matter where you lived or when you lived, everybody knows something's wrong. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. This is why people complain about it so much. That ain't right. Where was God when kind of thing, okay? But do you realize there can't be a way the world is not supposed to be unless there is a way the world is supposed to be. And you can't have a way the world is supposed to be without a sposer. Now, if you didn't get that, I'm not going to repeat it. It's too long. So watch the video. If there is no God, there's no supposer, then there's no way that things are supposed to be. Then things can't be broken. But everybody knows the world is broken. That means the problem of evil is a big problem for atheism, not for Christianity. It fits in our world. Now, explain how that does in just a moment. So, the first piece of the puzzle is God. God exists, he's the creator of everything else from nothing else, the world he made is his kingdom. His world includes mind, matter, physical stuff, non-physical stuff. One last thing, when he made the world, everything was just exactly the way his noble mind intended. It was just right, it was all working together just so, it was all the way it was supposed to be, which is just another way of saying that everything that God made was what? Good, okay? Now I want to introduce you to another character in the story. He's next because he's the most important uh, individual character in the story after God, and an entire chapter in the story is devoted just to the creation of man, God man. Now, in one way, man is like all other things in creation. He's made of physical stuff. Being made of physical stuff means we're creaturely. We are contingent. We die. We are not in charge of everything. We are not little gods, okay? First thing. A lot of people get this confused. We're not God. We're things, okay? But we're not just any old thing because there's something different about human beings than everything else. We have a soul, now, having a soul, a sentient self, a, an awareness, a self, is not what makes humans unique because, according to the story, every sentient creature has an inner self, has a soul. Wait, you mean Fido has a soul? Yeah, Fido has a soul. It's a very small soul. Well, what about Fifi? Fifi has a soul. Fifi has a soul. It's a very stupid soul. Okay, we got three little stupid souls running around my house. All right? But there's something different between human souls and animal souls, and that is human and souls bear the mark of God himself. We are not little gods, but we are like God intrinsically in a way that makes all the difference. In fact, every moral obligation that we have towards each other is based on the idea that we are not merely animals. This is why we tell our kids, don't treat each other like animals, because we're not. Even the moral obligations that are being raised, the moral concerns in our culture right now, the popular things that are all the rage right now, they are grounded in the idea that something special applies to human beings. And we have an obligation to treat human beings in particular ways because they're special in themselves. Not because of the way they look, not because of their skin color, not because of their capabilities or how much money they have. That's all shallow stuff. It's because of who they are made in the image of God that we show respect and we pursue justice for human beings. If you didn't have that, then there is no reason to do that. It's just a power struggle. That's all that's left. So in the Christian story, we have a way of making sense of the problems we have right now, but also ordering it properly. Because everybody on every side of the issue is supposed to treat others as valuable, made in the image of God. And this image of God is also the kind of thing that makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. We're unique in that regard. But there's a problem. 
Though God gave us a wonderful place to live in, and the most important thing that He gave us was Himself, man did not treat that relationship well. When I say man, I mean human beings here. So I'm just a, I'm an old guy, and I, I talk like that, okay? So I don't, you're not going to hear, he, she, he, she, he, she, he, she, he, she. That gets old for me. But I just want you to know when I say man fell, ladies, I think you are just as bad as men are. <laughs> just so you know, I'm egalitarian when it comes to that kind of thing. Man was capable of living in harmony with God under his rulership in his kingdom, but he also could betray the friendship. He could rebel. In a word, it could be bad. That's called moral freedom. And man did not use his freedom well. Instead of using it to honor God, he used it to rebel. He didn't want to be under God. He wanted to do his own thing. You know the drill on that because things haven't changed in all these years in that regard. And when he chose rebellion rather than obedience, everything changed. I want to take a moment to say exactly how that happened, because this particular event is absolutely critical. And incidentally, I want to, a lot of people want to make this event, well, that's just like storytelling. Listen, if this is a fiction, it doesn't do any work for us. It's like if you have a, a scar on your face and your son says, Dad, how did you get that scar on your face? And you say, well, once upon a time, well, that boy knows he's not going to get the answer to his question because he wants to know how did you get that scar on your face right there. That takes a real historical event that caused that. Human, humanity has a scar on it. We're broken badly. How did that happen? This is how it happened. And if it's a fantasy story, it doesn't explain anything. There's another player in the story. He's an intruder. He's a deceiver. He's a tempter. And he's a mortal enemy of the king who speaks a terrible lie. He tells Adam and Eve the king cannot be trusted. Don't listen to him. Find your own way. Make your own choices. Make your own rules and follow your own desires. Freedom awaits you. Be like God. And they ponder the temptation. They consider it, they turn it over in their mind, and then they give in to the deception. And the single act of disobedience then changes everything. Human beings enticed by the allure of the sovereign self turn against their Lord. Their kingdom is torn by revolt. But the rebellion does not bring freedom. And this is our message to the world. What you think is freedom is not freedom. It's slavery, and sooner or later you're going to learn that. And many of you are learning it already. Instead, rebellion brought brokenness and disgrace and guilt and slavery and struggle. Man is still beautiful, made in the image of God, but now he's broken. And everything has changed. He's morally twisted, inactive rebellion, and he's spiritually dead. That means he's unplugged from the only source of power and life that's available to him. He's spiritually dead, and now he's enslaved. He's enslaved by two new masters. One, the master who he chose to follow, the devil, who isn't a guy in right tight, red tights with a pitchfork, all right? He's a real deal. They chose to follow him. Now they're enslaved to him. And they're also enslaved to their own broken humanity that the story calls the flesh. And he's guilty of sedition against his sovereign, the king of the universe. Man is lost, and the king is mad. Now, this is not good news. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, I'm following your story so far, and everything's hunky-dory, and I get it, it's interesting, blah, 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 and God, and blah. And now you're getting me the hellfire and brimstone stuff. The king is mad. I thought your God was a God of love. Okay, I have a question to ask you. Why do you think God is a God of love? Well, uh, he's good, isn't he? Yeah, he's good. He's more than good. He's perfect. Well, then that would make him a God of love, right? You're right. Okay, well, if he is a God of love because he's morally perfect, because he's good, then what's all this 
God is angry business. I'll tell you what it is. God is angry because he's good. The very thing that grounds his love, which is his goodness, is the very thing that grounds his anger against lack of goodness, rebellion. Because God would not be good if he let evil people go free. And this creates a very difficult situation. And incidentally, this explains why the world is broken. Why is there so much evil in the world? I'll tell you why. You have children, many of you, okay? You make boundaries for your kids. Why do you make boundaries? Because you love your kids. You know something about how the, the world works. You know they go outside of these boundaries, like if I just stepped off of this boundary right here, that brings injury. This is not good. Stay away. Stay within the proper boundaries. Do what's right, kids, and you'll be safe, okay? Well, we understand that. Then, then what happens? They go out of the boundaries. Something gets broken. Maybe Papa's tool. Maybe a vase. Dishes or something like I don't know. Maybe it's Mama's tool and Papa's vase. I don't know. I'll try not to be all sexist about this. But sometimes what gets broken is a relationship. Sometimes what gets broken is an entire life. And sometimes the breakage is irreparable. We know this in common living. Well, God is the same way. He builds boundaries for humanity because he made the world good. He knows how the world works. And when we break through and go outside of the boundaries and we put ourselves in charge, bad things happen. Things get broken. And when our first parents rebelled against the sovereign of the universe, they broke the world. And that's why we have a problem of evil. That's why everybody knows something's wrong with the world. We broke it. Two things you need to know about the problem of evil. First, evil's part of our story. Our whole story is about the problem of evil. If there was no problem of evil, there'd be no story. Second thing, the story's not over yet. The story is not over yet. You pick up um, the Rings trilogy, for example. You start reading through about these nice little hobbits and the things they're doing, and these great guys going on an adventure, and they're out camping and with the elves and going through the... Well, the cave thing starts to get a little dark, you know, and then Gandalf gets whacked, you know, and then the big eye is looking down at him, and everything's... The fellowship is broken up, and you say, what the heck kind of story is this? What a mess! This is a lousy story. Keep reading. The story is not over yet. And with man lost and helpless, God himself steps into the picture in a very unique way to initiate a rescue operation to solve the problem of evil. God, man, Jesus. Okay? Now, there's two things you need to know about Jesus that are central to the story, and they do not have to do with his teachings at large. And they have nothing to do with social justice or, uh, uh, you know, let's all get along and love each other. That is not why Jesus came. Came for the, these two reasons. The first thing is the person of Christ, who he is. The second one is the work of Christ, what he came to do. The person and the work of Christ. So who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a human being. This is pretty clear. He had uh, human form. He had a uh, human body, that is. He had human experiences. Uh, he, he slept and he ate and he drank and he experienced joy and he experienced sorrow and he hurt and was hungry. All of the things that you and I experience as human beings, Jesus experienced because he was one of us. He walked with us to understand what life as one of us entails, all of it. But he was more than that. He wasn't just a human being. He wasn't just a man. He was also fully God. And the story is very clear on that. I mentioned the beginning of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's how Jesus' story starts. In the beginning, very be same beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, the Word, and apart from Him, nothing 
came into being that has come into being. In other words, what John is saying there at the introduction to the life of Jesus is that this one that he calls the word is the very same one that was in the first sentence of the story who made everything that was ever made. And then he says a little further, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And by the way, I think this is the best line in the story. I mean, making everything in the first line, that's pretty cool. That's like awesome. But this is sublime because it takes humility for God to come down out of heaven to dwell with us, and that's what God did. The Word comes down out and then dwells with us and takes on a human form. He doesn't lose his divinity, but he sets aside the privileges. Now think about it, if you have a child that is anguished and, and, and crying and scared or whatever, how do you approach that child? Don't you bend over a little bit to talk to that child? Don't you crouch down just a little bit, see if this 71-year-old guy can do this? like this to talk with them and get on their level. You get down, you get small to connect. And that's what God did. He got down. He got small to be like us, to rescue us. Though he existed in the form of God, Paul says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself and became a servant, and he walked with us. And not just a servant, but he became one who died the death of a common criminal out of love for us. That's the Jesus we're talking about. That's who he was. He was the God-man stepping down getting low to be with us. What did he come to do? There's a lot of confusion about this, but I'll just say it simply. Jesus did not come to teach us how to live. The prophets had already done that. Jesus came because we didn't live the way God told us to live, and he came to rescue us from the consequences. And you can see it in his own words. There's a huge confusion with a lot of Christians now. This is all about Jesus telling us how we're supposed to live, so let's do all of these things that Jesus tells us to do. Now, he does tell us to do some things, and that's important, but they mistake the secondary for the primary. Here's what Jesus said. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In another place, I came to give my life a ransom or a payment for many. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to, that the world might be saved through him. In other words, Jesus is the rescuer because we don't live the way we ought to live. And many times when he said, here's how you ought to live, he said it to poke people in the eye to show them that they weren't living like that. Remember the Good Samaritan? Well, that's not a morality play to Jesus. He told the Good Samaritan story because there was a legalist who said, well, who is my neighbor? He said, you got to love your neighbor Seeking to justify himself, he asked, who is his neighbor? So Jesus said, okay, your neighbor is your worst enemy. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> You're not going to do it. You're guilty in both, on both of the great commandments. That's the point. We need rescue. Now, to save means to rescue from imminent danger. We're in danger. What is the danger? What is Jesus rescuing us from? I'll tell you what Jesus is rescuing us from. Jesus is rescuing us from the Father. Now, this doesn't sit well with a lot of people, but it is good theology because the king is the one who's angry. And when Jesus does what he does to rescue us, he is doing it to satisfy the demands of justice before the judge of the world. And, of course, it was the judge that sent his son to accomplish this. So he is both the judge and the lover sending the rescue at the same time, which is a very interesting pattern. That's God. I was talking on an airplane to a young lady who's a Muslim, 
We're talking about the comparison of Islam to Christianity. And I offered a thought to her. I said, <clears throat> I, I, I offered it to her, I mean, we're talking in the airplane and I'm speaking quietly and I say to her, let's imagine that this airplane got hijacked. Hijacked. <laughs> and the hijackers came down the aisle to grab you and take you out of the tarmac to slit your throat before CNN, right? And I put my arms in front of you and I said, don't take her, take me instead. I said, what would you think if I were to do that for you? She said, I cannot imagine anyone ever doing that for me. And I said, that is what Jesus did for you. Not Allah, Yahweh. Not Muhammad, Jesus. Jesus looked to the Father and he said, Father, take me instead. That's the trade that we get with Christ. To satisfy justice, God came down. He stepped out of heaven, dwelt among us. Jesus said to the Father, take me instead. And that trade took place in a small outcropping of rock outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. The locals called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. We know it as Calvary, the place of the cross. Now, I have to do this very quickly because I'm right at my time. Um, God, man, Jesus, cross. Crucifixion is a terrible form of punishment. People who die by crucifixion suffocate to death. They can't breathe when they're hanging there, okay? Jesus not only was crucified, but he had been whipped and brutally beaten. Why was he punished so badly, this innocent man? Well, there was a transaction that was taking place on the cross. Now, on top of the cross, there was a little sign. It said, King of the Jews. This was the crime against the state. That was called a, a debt he owed. And in ancient Near Eastern economics, they would have a debt filled out on paper, on parchment. And then when it was paid, they would put a word across the debt that it's paid completely. The word was tetelestai, okay? And that showed that the payment was made for the debt that was in question. But... Being king of the Jews wasn't the real crime that Jesus paid for because while he was hanging there on the cross, what the father did is he made a trade and he take all the crimes of all humanity, punishment adequate for every th bad thing that every person, including you, has ever done, and he laid that punishment on Jesus as if he were guilty of all. And in those three hours where darkness shrouded Calvary, this exchange was taking place. And so that at the end of that time, just before Jesus surrenders his spirit to the Father, he cries out with a single word, Tetelestai. Now, your Bible's translated it as finished, but he, he's not saying, I'm glad that's over with. He's saying, I have accomplished it. I've done it. I have paid the price that pays the debt for anyone who puts their faith and confidence in me. It's finished. The rescue is complete. And this is why Jesus is the only way of salvation. He is the only one who solved the problem. Nobody else did that. Nobody else could. Without Jesus, each of us would have to pay our own individual debts, and this will not be a pretty picture because that's what comes next. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. In other words, the decision you make about what Jesus did on the cross will determine what happens at the final moment. And to put it most briefly, as all of humanity is gathered before Jesus himself, who will be the judge, Jesus meek and mild, Jesus preaching all the love, Jesus who's happy with everybody doing whatever they want them to do, or so goes the current cultural doctrine, that Jesus, no longer the Lamb of God, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah standing there, or seated at the great white throne, dividing the groups, and one of two things is going to happen, sheep, goats, either perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice, which means punishment for every crime you have ever committed, and God misses nothing. Or 
perfect forgiveness, which is mercy for every crime you have ever committed, and God misses nothing. Those are the choices. So in the last moments, All who have rejected God's mercy in Christ, either actively or passively, will be judged by their works and punished and separated from Him in a place of conscious torment forever. And there's no way out after that. And those who have ceased their rebellion and surrendered to their King, who receive His pardon, become members of His family, will live with Him in a new world, enjoying the perfect life He intended for us at the first, experiencing a life better than the best we could ever imagine. So I've just told you a story. If you're a Christian, this is your story. If you're not a Christian, this is still your story because this is not a religious fantasy. This is the story of the way things actually are. The story has five elements, God, man, Jesus, cross, and resurrection. I can tell the whole story in one long sentence. Here it goes. Put your pens down because you're not going to be able to follow this. I've already talked about it, though. God, the creator of the universe, in order to rescue man from punishment for his rebellion, took on humanity in Jesus, the Savior, to die on a cross and rise from the dead so that in the final resurrection we could enjoy a wonderful friendship with our sovereign Lord in the kind of perfect world our hearts have always yearned for. Or as C.S. Lewis put it so marvelously, the door that we've been knocking on all of our life will finally open. So I've just told you a story, but it's not just a story. It's a true story. It's the true story. It is the story of reality. Dear Father, your story is a m magnificent and overwhelming. We are all aware of our role in this story when we're honest in our deep need to be rescued. We flail about with all kinds of alternatives trying to make life work without you, and we just dig ourselves in deeper and deeper. Father, we pray that your mercy be shown today to us for followers of you to have a deeper understanding of the big picture, that it might guide and direct our lives. For those who are not following you to be cut to the quick in their souls as they realize how badly they need you and turn to you for perfect mercy instead of perfect justice. I commend them to you for Christ's sake. Amen.